invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. If, uh, if you're unfamiliar with where the Psalms are, you can kind of just plop your Bible open in the middle and, and you should land somewhere in there and then work your way to Psalm 89. If you need a Bible, you're welcome to grab one of the black ones on either side of the room and, and keep that as your own if you don't have one. Uh, we want to, to get the Word of God into your hands. Uh, it is essential to our life. Uh, it is the very bread uh, by which our souls feed and live, okay? Every uh, man does not live on bread alone, God's word says, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And these are the words that have come out of the mouth of God right here in this book. So I want to encourage you to have that uh, in front of you in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we're going to, uh, if you have one of the black Bibles that we have here, you can find that on page 520. Uh, we are in a series in the Psalms right now, uh, and this series is called Resurrecting Hope from Trouble to Triumph with the Christ of the Psalms. We're, we're working our way from trouble to triumph with this Christ on our way to Easter Sunday, where the ultimate triumph happens when Jesus, uh, we get to celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And we need to keep a few things in mind as we go through this series together. You might recognize these from last week if you were here. Uh, but these are important context things for us to keep in mind. So I'm just going to uh, quickly go through these. First, uh, you might hear me use the term Psalter this morning, if that's a new term to you. All that simply means is the book of Psalms, okay? the, whole, the whole collection of them. Um, and so if you hear that, that's what you can think of. Second, uh, the Psalms often refer to God's anointed one. In English, that's what it says in our Bibles, and especially throughout the Psalms. Uh, in in uh, Hebrew, it's Messiah, or the, the English transliteration for that is Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. So Christ and Messiah mean anointed one, and so that is what is being referred to whenever we come across that. Uh, in the Old Testament, anointed, literally, oh, anointed one literally meant they were anointed with oil. Okay? So it would be uh, God's prophets, God's priests, God's kings, but the Psalms uh, focus specifically on uh, the king of Israel as God's anointed one. That is, the, that is the major focus. Whenever you see anointed one, you need to think king of Israel. And so, for example, King David was a Christ, a uh, Messiah, an anointed one, but he was not the anointed one. He's a type. Jesus is uh, the, David would be the shadow, if you will. Jesus is the substance, Okay. Uh, third, the Psalms are heavily influenced by God's covenant promise to King David, um, in which God vowed to make one of David's descendants sit on the throne forever as the eternal king, as the Christ. And so we know as believers today that that is pointing us ultimately to Jesus, and so we need to keep that in mind as well. David wrote almost half of the Psalms in the Psalter, but the Psalter was not arranged by David. It was arranged later by a, a, an editor or group of editors, sometime after the, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by Babylon, sometime after they returned from the Babylonian exile in the sem, uh, second temple period. So you, kind of between your Old and New Testaments, okay, in that time. Um, and, and, uh, and, and the important thing to remember there, though, is that there was no king on the throne when, when this is put together. Empty throne, which makes it feel like an empty promise right? Fourth, the editors arrange the Psalter in such a way that it takes God's people through the perspective of God's anointed one on this heart-engaging journey from lament to praise as the anointed one himself, the, the king, each king who gets on the throne, 
as they wait for God to fulfill his promise to David and make somebody sit on the throne forever. In the time when all hope in God's covenant promise seemed lost, the Psalter was arranged together by those who wanted to resurrect that hope in God's people and move their hearts to prayer and praise directed at the God who is faithful to keep his promises, every last one of them. And so that, that is what's influencing the name of our series. Uh, and, and then uh, Psalms 1 and 2 serve as the framework through which we are to view the rest of the Psalter. They are, uh, they are the, the doorway into everything else here. So if you haven't read those, I'd encourage you to, to go read those this week. Together they give us the portrait of this anointed one, this one that everyone is waiting for as both the ideal human being, the perfect human being, and the perfect king. And so as we look at other psalms in the Psalter, including Psalm 89 this morning, we need to keep Psalms 1 and 2 continually in mind. And then lastly, I talked about the Psalter referring to the entire collection of psalms, but this entire collection of psalms is actually divided into five separate books. Uh, and, uh, and, and as we're making our way to Easter Sunday, we've, we are spending time right now looking at the last psalm in each one of these books so that we can see the flow not only of the individual books themselves, but also of the Psalter as a whole, how it takes us from lament to praise as we look forward to this Christ who has yet to come and fulfill the covenant promise to David. And so this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 89 together, which is the last psalm in book three, okay? Now, book three... Uh, book one and two had some, some laments in them. We, we talked about that. Book three is the darkest book of the whole Psalter. One of the shortest, but it, it, is, it is the darkest book. It's a book of crisis that focuses heavily on the shameful and broken state of David's kingdom brought about by the people's unfaithfulness to God and God's response of judgment against his own people for their disobedience. Now, to show you how dark this is, because all of the Psalter is based on the covenant promise to David, book three only contains one psalm that's written by David. Even in that, David's voice is almost absent. It's dark. It is foreboding. It is lamentful. And the psalm that David wrote in, uh, and that was included in this book is itself a lament. Now, we've seen already from the, some of the other lament psalms that we've been through, most laments contain Still, at some point, probably mostly the end of the psalm, some sort of hope, right? Like, oh, Lord, this is really hard, and yet, I know you're good. I know you'll come through. I know you're faithful, right? But just to give you an idea of how things have gotten in book three, the psalm right before this, Psalm 88, that was not written by David, ends with these words, darkness is my only friend. That's it. That's how the psalm finishes, Darkness is my only friend. You ever felt that way? If so, then you need to know that you are not actually alone. You have, darkness is not your only friend. Darkness is not your only friend. And this morning, Psalm 89 is going to teach us all how to walk in that darkness, how to walk through a crisis of faith so that we're able then to recognize and rest in the glorious reality that our God is actually faithful to shine his light into even our darkest moments and darkest places. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord to do exactly that through his word. And then we'll dig into Psalm 89 this morning. Father, thank you for your word that is a lamp 
to our feet and a light to our path because it points us to Jesus who is the light of the world. Lord, I know that there are some in here this morning who are currently sitting in darkness, the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of pain and suffering, the darkness of endurance. I pray this morning that the light of your glory through the face of Jesus Christ would shine again into our hearts to give faith to those who don't believe, to give endurance to those who feel like quitting, to give hope to those who feel like everything around them is falling apart. And we pray that you would do this all for your own glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1923, Thomas Chisholm wrote the lyrics to a hymn that has come to be near and dear to many people in the last century. It's only about 100 years old. Uh, But the name of this hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy Faithfulness. Maybe you're familiar with it. If not, or even if you are, here, here are the lyrics to the first verse in the chorus. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Beautiful, beautiful words, are they not? But I'm willing to bet, if you're like me, that sometimes it's difficult for you to sing those words honestly. Because we all go through times in our lives when God feels distant from us, when he feels uninterested in our plight, or, or when it feels like he's uninterested in our plight, or it feels like, quite frankly, God is unfaithful to keep his promises. And we wonder, Lord, where are you? What are you doing right now? The title of this psalm tells us that it's a maskil of Ethan the Ezraite. Maskil is a Hebrew term that scholars have taken a lot of educated guesses on and still don't know the meaning of. The word selah is the same way. You're going to see the, the, the selah uh, throughout the psalm here this morning, uh, but we just don't really know what they mean, okay? And so um, uh, uh, one thing, though, that, that we can know is a little bit more about Ethan the Ezraite. According to, to 1 Kings 4, he was known in the days of King Solomon as a very wise man. Solomon was compared to him as wiser than even Ezra, uh, uh, Ethan the Ezraite. So this guy was up there in wisdom. We're not told the context in which he wrote this psalm, but based on his lament here, it seems that he may have written it either while David's son Absalom was trying to kill David and get him off the throne, or sometime after Solomon himself, David's son, who took the throne, uh, after he died and the kingdom then split into two, Uh, and just went into complete disarray after that. Either way, it's clear that Ethan sees God's covenant promise seemingly in peril. Like it's in danger of of not happening, which makes this psalm then a fitting one to apply to many times of crisis in Israel's history, including and especially during the Babylonian exile when literally no king was on the throne because the, the, the people of Judah weren't even in Jerusalem, a lot of them. And the last king, Zedekiah, was taken in captive to Babylon. So here's what we're going to learn. Because psalms are, are, are instructive 
even as they help us uh, work through and give voice to our own feelings. Here's what we're going to learn. When it feels like God is being unfaithful, we can be honest about how we feel. Can we all just take a sigh of relief right there? When it feels like God is being unfaithful, we can be honest about how we feel, but we can't stop there. We must remember also who God is and what God has done. We have to counsel our souls with the faithfulness of God. So let's go on this emotional journey together with Ethan the Ezra Height, remembering that these aren't merely words of a miserable man. We need to recognize that God in his wisdom and his grace has seen fit to include Ethan's words into the canon of Scripture, which means that these words are meant for our instruction, but also then to give voice to our pain, and we are meant to take them to heart in order to grow more dependent upon Jesus and more confident in Jesus, who is the Christ that God has brought in faithful fulfillment to his promise to David. So in the opening verses, Ethan declares God to be praiseworthy. We're going to start off on a good note here. Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4. A masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations with my mouth. For I will declare faithful love is built up forever. You established your faithfulness in the, in the heavens. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Now, what is the theme of Ethan's praise here? It's God's faithfulness, right? And more specifically, God's faithful love. Another way to say that would be God's covenant love. Whenever you see those words faithful love in your translation, it is speaking of God's covenant love for his people. And Ethan draws our attention to God's covenant with David then in verses three and four. Everyone, whether an Israelite or non-Israelite, who takes refuge in God's anointed one, according to Psalm 2, will experience the blessings that flow from God's covenant with David. One of those blessings is to experience God's faithful love, his covenant love for his people. And when you experience God's covenant faithful love, it makes your heart want to sing. It makes you want to proclaim that faithful love to generation after generation. As Ethan reflects on God's faithful love, his own love for God then prompts him to dwell on what else makes God praiseworthy. Like, let's just go down this trail for a minute, right? And in these next verses, he praises God for his faithfulness in creation. Look at five through seven. Lord, the heavens praise your wonders, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? God is greatly feared in the council of the holy ones, more awe-inspiring than all who surround him. What's the theme of heaven's praise here? It's the faithfulness of God, right? It's not only God's creative wonders, it's his faithfulness. No heavenly being comes even close to comparing to this faithful God. Let's keep going, verses eight through 12. You, I'm reading the wrong one. Lord God of armies, Who is strong like you, Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When when its waves surge, you still them. You crushed Rahab 
like, the, like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your powerful arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and everything in it, you founded them. North and south, you created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. Did you catch that? God's faithfulness surrounds him, surrounds him. It pours out from his heavenly throne, which means that the holy ones who surround him are being upheld and sustained by God's faithful love. The seas here are a picture of chaos and evil. And the name Rahab, you might recognize that name as the prostitute uh, in the Old Testament. That's not what it's referring to here. Rahab here means raging one. And it refers to a sea monster or a sea serpent. And when, when the seas rage, the psalmist says God is faithful to still them. And when the enemies of God rage, the psalmist says God is faithful to crush them. This language takes us back to the first three chapters in Genesis when the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the chaotic waters, the darkness, and and brought order into everything through his acts of creation. And after that, order was thrown back into chaos by Adam and Eve when they believed the serpent's lies and sinfully rebelled against God in the garden. God faithfully promised once again to send a serpent crusher who would put an end to evil and restore order Again, once and for all. He'd calm the raging seas. He'd crush the serpent. Faithfulness would once again surround everything. In verses 11 and 12, we're reminded that there is nowhere, nowhere that God's faithfulness is not known. Nowhere. The heavens and the earth, north and south, and everything in between is dependent upon this faithful God who created it all. In contrast to the raging seas and the raging enemies of God, the mountains here are a picture of stability and splendor and grandeur and glory. They're immovable. Tabor and Hermon were the two most prominent mountains in Israel, and here the psalmist depicts these beacons of strength shouting for joy as they reflect on the name of the Lord who made them. The greatest mountains are declaring the greatness of their creator. God's name, Yahweh, Lord in all caps in your Bible, is synonymous with his character and his reputation. And the psalmist elaborates on that as he praises God for his faithfulness in redemption. Look at 13 through 18. You have a mighty arm, And your hand is powerful. Your right hand is lifted high. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Happy, aka blessed, are the people who know the joyful shout. Lord, they walk in the light from your face. They rejoice in your name all day long. And they are exalted by your righteousness. For you are their magnificent strength. By your favor, Our horn is exalted. Surely our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. It's not just the mountains that have reason to shout for joy at the name of the Lord. All who walk in the light from his face, that is all who are blessed to know God's redeeming covenant love, what do they do? They rejoice in his name all day long. 
The character and reputation of that name are spoken of in verses 13 and 14. His might, his power are unmatched. His throne is founded on righteousness and justice, and he rules with faithful love and truth. And here, his his people are marveling at the reality that the Lord who created everything has pledged himself especially to them and to their king, their horn, their shield. They're rejoicing that the Holy One of Heaven is also the Holy One of Israel. Incredible. They're rejoicing that the one who sits on the throne of heaven, who never does any wrong and who never lies, has determined to give his magnificent strength to Israel's king and his faithful love to all whom he exalts with his own righteousness. And that reality then moves the psalmist to recall this covenant that God made with David long ago. We're going to give a stretch here, 19 through 27. You once spoke in a vision to your faithful ones and said, I have granted help to a warrior. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I've found David my servant and have anointed him with my sacred oil. My hand will always be with him and my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not oppress him. The wicked will not afflict him. I will crush his foes before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and love will be with him. And through my name... His horn will be exalted, and I will extend his power to the sea and his right hand to the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. What an incredible list of things that God has promised to do for his anointed one. And what are these promises anchored to? Verse 24 My, what, faithfulness and love will be with him and through my name, my character, my being, my reputation, his horn will be exalted. The horn here is a symbol of strength and victory like the horns of a bull that has risen up its head in triumph. Long ago, the psalmist says, once The Lord put his own character and reputation on the line when he promised that he would be faithful to exalt Israel's king to victory and make his character, make the king's character and reputation known throughout the earth as God's faithful representative so that all who take refuge in this king would be blessed through him. This is an unbreakable bond between the Lord and his anointed one. Look at verses 28 through 37. I will always preserve my faithful love for him and my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as heaven lasts. If his sons abandon my instruction and do not live by my ordinances, if they dishonor my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will call their rebellion to account with the rod, their iniquity with blows. But I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or change what my lips have said. Once and for all, I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring will continue forever. His throne like the sun before me, like the moon established forever. A faithful 
witness in the sky. God has promised in no uncertain terms to be faithful no matter what to David, even when David's descendants are unfaithful to God while they sit on the throne. Verses 33 through 35 are the, are, are the key verses here. But I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or change what my lips have said. I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. God has promised to be as faithful to make David's throne endure as he is faithful to make the sun and moon endure. Now just let that reality sink in the next time you walk outside and look up and see the same sun or the same moon in the sky. In the sky. It's right here then. So far so good, right? This is like this is like stirring our own hearts up to praise the Lord for his faithfulness. But it's right here, almost at like this pinnacle moment of God's faithful promise that things take a dramatic shift. And the tone of this psalm takes a drastic turn. As these words of the the Lord are echoing in the mind of the psalmist, he, he dramatically shifts from reminiscing about God's faithfulness in the past to accusing God of being unfaithful in the present. Look at verses 38 through 45. But you have spurned and rejected him. You have become enraged with your anointed. You have repudiated the covenant with your, ser- with your servant. You have completely dishonored his crown. You have broken down all his walls. You have reduced his fortified cities to ruins. All who pass by plunder him as he has become an object of ridicule to his neighbors. You have lifted high the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back his sharp sword and have not let him stand in battle. You have made his splendor cease and have overturned his throne. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Were you squirming in your seat at all when you hear those words? This man is saying these things to the Lord of all the earth. There's no subtlety here. There's no humble reverence. In fact, this this psalmist seems quite irreverent on the surface here, doesn't he? He's basically calling God a liar. You have, you have, you have, you have, you have. You have done these things. And you've done them to your anointed one. The one that you promised to put on the throne. What about your covenant promise? What about your faithful love and truth? What about the righteousness and justice that comes from your throne? What about your name, your character, and your reputation? You've abandoned your anointed one. Great is thy faithfulness? Right now, it feels like great is thy unfaithfulness. Now, these, wor- these verses that we just read would have especially resonated with the people of Judah in 586 BC as they watched the Babylonians break down the walls, to use the language he's using here, of Jerusalem to reduce the city and the temple to ruins. And then, as they watched the Babylonians overturn the throne when they captured 
King Zedekiah and dishonor his crown and, and cover him in shame by killing his sons in front of him and then blinding him and then carrying him off to Babylon in chains into exile. Leaving the whole city vulnerable and the throne empty. But was God being unfaithful to them when all of this was, happened, was happening? No. It's quite the opposite, actually. Maybe you don't know much about Zedekiah, but here's what it says about him in 2 Kings 24, 19, and 20. Zedekiah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done, another king. Because of the Lord's anger, his righteous wrath, that we need to read that into there, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. Remember how Exodus 34, in, uh, how God described himself there? The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and truth. doesn't say the Lord will never anger. Oh, he's so patient. But his, his anointed ones continued in rebellion, and he finally banished them from his pres- uh, presence. And then 2 Kings 24, 20 finishes out by saying, Not only did Zedekiah rebel against the Lord, but then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. That's an unwise move. If you reject God and then you go after God's enemies. Did you catch what Ethan the Ezraite included but seems to have overlooked as he recalled the Lord's covenant promise to David? Look back at verses 30 through 32. It says, if his sons... David's sons, the the anointed ones who sit on the throne after him, if his sons abandon my instruction and do not live by my ordinances, if they dishonor my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will call their rebellion to account with the rod, their iniquity with blows. Instead of accusing God of being unfaithful, the, the psalmist here should have acknowledged that it was God's anointed ones who were being unfaithful. What he should have said in verses 38 and 39 were were this. They should have sounded more like this. But your anointed one has spurned and rejected you. He has repudiated the covenant with you. He has completely dishonored the crown that you gave him. And in his despair, Ethan the Ezraite has accused God of being unfaithful to keep his promises when in fact, God's been faithful to do what he said he would do. If they disobey me and they reject me, I will call them to account. He's faithful to discipline his people when we go astray. Kings who abandon God's instruction lead God's people to abandon God's instruction. Kings who dishonor God's statutes lead God's people to dishonor God's statutes. Kings who do not keep God's commands lead God's people to not keep God's commands. And in his faithful covenant love, God will call their rebellion into account with the rod and their iniquity with blows. He's faithful to do that. But all the psalmist sees right now is God's anger not his faithful love. And that leads him then to question if he'll ever see God's faithful love. Again, look at 46 through 51. How long, Lord? Will you hide forever? Will your anger keep burning like fire? 
Remember how short my life is. Have you created everyone for nothing? What courageous person can live and never see death? Who can save himself from the power of Sheol? Lord, where are your former acts of your faithful love that you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, Lord, the ridicule against your servants. In my heart, I carry abuse from all the peoples. How your enemies have ridiculed, Lord. Oh, how they have ridiculed every step of your anointed. Now, there is quite a contrast here from the way this psalm started out, is there not? Let's just review for a moment. Remember verse one? I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. Now he asks, Lord, where are the former acts of your faithful love? Will you hide forever? In verse six, he asked, for who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? And in verse 11, he said, the heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and everything in it, you founded them. And now he asks, have you created it all for nothing? In verse 26, the psalmist recalled how God promised to be a father and a rock of salvation to his anointed one. And now the psalmist asks, what courageous person can live and never see death? Who can save himself from the power of Sheol, from the grave? In other words, where is this rock of salvation that was promised? Where is the eternal throne that was promised? God, if, the, if, if your anointed ones can't save themselves, what chance do any of us have? And one final appeal to God's compassion. The psalmist petitions God to remember two things here. First one's in verse 47. Remember how short my life is. The psalmist longs to see God's faithful love again, but things seem so hopeless that he assumes that for the rest of his life, all he'll ever see is God's holy anger, burning like fire, unquenched. And then in verse 50 and 51, Lord, remember the ridicule of your enemies against your people, against me, against your anointed one. The psalmist mentioned this ridicule already back in verse 41 when he was slinging accusations at God. In light of that, it, it seems that he may be ending the psalm here by saying, Lord, remember the ridicule that you have caused and put an end to it. Book three of the Psalter is a dark book indeed, is it not? Psalm 2 tells us that the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed one, and God laughs and ridicules the nations because he has installed his king on his holy mountain. It's a guarantee of his promise that it will be fulfilled. But at the end of book three, Ethan the Ezraite concludes that it is God who is raging against his anointed one, leaving the throne empty while the nations laugh and ridicule. Lord, what's going on? No doubt the people of Israel and Judah felt the same way over the years as king after king came and went. And they would have especially felt this way when the Babylonians came and emptied David's throne permanently. Or at least it felt like permanently. But not all of them. In God's faithfulness, God was preserving a faithful remnant of his people who trusted him 
to keep his promises. And those people would not only be able to relate to how Ethan the Ezraite felt because they would be right in the midst of it. They would see and feel this, this seeming defeat. But they would also be able to sing wholeheartedly. The doxology that was added later to this psalm, not only to close out uh, what Ethan the Ezraite had written, but to close out this dark book three as a whole. And here's what it says, verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Now that sounds more like verse one, doesn't it? Their, their praise is anchored to God's name. Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. They're, it's anchored to his character, his reputation. What's it anchored to? It's anchored to his faithfulness. The reality is that there's never been a lapse in the Lord's faithfulness or his covenant love. Church, we need to understand that. There has never once been been even a hint of God's unfaithfulness anywhere. What God's unfaithful people needed was a king who's as faithful as God is. And those who sang this doxology were looking forward to that king who would come in generations to, to come. And, his faith, and in his faithful covenant love, God reminded his people of his promise to give them that king through lots of his prophets. Jeremiah was one of them. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 says this. The Lord's saying this. Look, the days are coming. They're coming. They're coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administrate and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This king would share the same character and the same reputation as Yahweh because this king would share Yahweh's name. Righteousness and justice would be the foundation of this king's throne just as they're the foundation of Yahweh's throne. This king would be called the rock of salvation as the father's chosen son. This king would be exalted as the greatest of the kings of the earth, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Who is this king? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, capital A, capital O, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. He is the embodiment of God's faithful character and reputation because he is God himself. And this king who is fully God also became fully human. And he came into this world and he lived a perfect life of righteousness and justice of faithful love and truth. He did not abandon his father's instruction. He did not dishonor his father's statutes. He lived by his father's ordinances and he kept his father's commands. And here's the kicker. In spite of all of that, the father called him to account for our rebellion, for the rebellion of his people and Jesus himself, the anointed one, the king willingly received the blows for our iniquity. 
in the greatest act of faithful love toward undeserving sinners like you and me, the Father's righteous wrath burned like fire against his one and only Son as Jesus hung on the cross in our place. He became the object of ridicule to his neighbors and all his enemies rejoiced as the Father covered him with shame. But that shame, listen, that was our shame. That was our shame. And for the joy set before him, this king, Jesus Christ, despised the shame of of crucifixion and he endured the cross for our sake. And while Jesus hung on the cross, he used the Psalms to give voice to his own pain. When he quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the darkest moment in the history of the world, the light of the world was put to death and his body was sealed in a dark tomb, seemingly forever. But the father would not withdraw his faithful love from his one and only son. He would not betray his faithfulness to his anointed one. After Jesus gave himself as the perfect sacrifice to purchase forgiveness for everyone, every sinner who takes refuge in him, God the Father raised his chosen servant from the dead and exalted him to the eternal throne for all generations. That includes our generation. This king is on the throne right now. Have you taken refuge in him? Or are you trying to live as the ruler of your own life without him? I plead with you this morning to remember how short your life is. What courageous person can live and never see death? Who can save himself from the power of the grave? Can you? No. You need someone who can save you. And that someone is Jesus Christ. For who in the skies can compare to him? Who among the heavenly beings is like him? He is the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in him will live forever with him. Listen, death will not have the final word. Faithful love will have the final word. And that faithful love is found only in Jesus Christ. So won't you take refuge in him? And do that now by turning from your sin and trusting in him. Listen, Psalm tells us right here, happy, blessed are the people who know the joyful shout, who walk in the light from God's face. And Paul elaborates on that for us in 2 Corinthians when he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, that is reason enough for us to rejoice in his name all day long, is it not? We need to be honest too because sometimes we don't feel like rejoicing because it feels like the darkness is our only friend. Our world is rocked. It's turned upside down by some, some crisis that catches us off guard, knocks the wind right out of us, and it feels like in that moment that God has abandoned us when we need him the most, that he's uninterested in our plight, and that he's, quite frankly, unfaithful to his promises. You 
in the midst of that crisis, it can be easy to accuse God of being unfaithful to us without considering the possibility that he may be faithfully disciplining us in love because we have turned away from him in disobedience to his word. Now hear me, because we've established this before. God's word is very clear on this. Not every form of suffering is a result of our own sin. Sometimes suffering is a result of other people's sin that happens to us. But whenever you're tempted to question God's faithfulness to you, that ought to maybe be a a flag that perhaps you really ought to question whether or not you're being faithful to the Lord. It's worth asking. The reality is that we don't live in faithful obedience to God all the time. That's why we need his faithful grace every minute of every day. I'm not trying to diminish suffering that happens to us. I want you to hear that. But isn't our our basic question when we suffer, why? Shouldn't we then exhaust all the options? Even when God's grace enables us to walk in obedience to him, that doesn't make us immune to suffering. You know this. So what then are we to do with our feelings of despair and doubt when we're in the, the midst of a darkened crisis? Well, I think that this psalm invites us to be completely honest with God. Listen, you're not gonna tell him anything he doesn't already know. He, he knows how you feel because he always knows what's in our hearts. He's all-knowing. He never learns anything. Nothing is a surprise to him. He's not going to be shocked by anything we have to say. He can handle it because he is God. And he's a loving father who listens to even, even to the blundering prayers of his children when they're in pain. If you have kids, maybe you're familiar with this, where they just lash out at you because they don't know what to do, how to, how to process. And in love, you lean in. In his divine wisdom and grace, God has allowed this psalm to be included in scripture to give voice to our own prayers when we feel like hope is all but dried up or maybe dried up completely. Now, I need you to hear me here too. I am not saying that it is okay to be irreverent toward God and flippant with our words toward him. We are not on equal levels with the Lord. He's the Lord of all. And yet, The book of Hebrews tells us to boldly approach his throne with confidence, seeking the grace that we need, knowing that he'll provide it. We need to remember that this psalmist loves God. He told us all of that at the beginning. But he's having trouble uh, reconciling his current experience with God's faithful promises. If he truly thought that God was unfaithful and had abandoned the covenant, why would he waste any of his time crying out to this God? Why bother? His petition at the end is ultimately for the Lord to show himself faithful once again, even if the psalmist himself can't express, I think you're faithful. So this psalm invites us to cry out to God, even when we're confused by what he seems to be doing, and and it invites us to tell him how we honestly feel. But listen, we need to know this. 
oh, we have to get this. It also invites us to honestly tell our feelings about God, who he is, what he's done. We need to remember that this psalm is one dark moment in a Psalter that ultimately and progressively points us to God's faithfulness and covenant love. So when we go through dark moments of crisis in our lives, even when it feels like those moments will be dark forever, we must remember the former acts of God's faithful love. When we, when we ask that question, where are they, Lord? We don't have to look any further than to the cross. The greatest act of God's faithful love in which he sent his one and only son to rescue us from sin, from his own wrath, from death, from Satan, all of our enemies, to rescue us from darkness, chaos, crisis. Sometimes we just need others to come along and help us remember God's faithfulness. Sometimes we need others to come along and put a doxology at the end of our lament. See, we have an advantage over Ethan the Ezraite. We have the rest of the story that tells us how God faithfully kept his covenant promise to David through Jesus Christ. We have the new covenant truth that every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus Therefore, through Jesus, we also say, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. When it feels like God is being unfaithful, praise God that we can be honest about how we feel. But we also need to remember who he is and what he's done. We need to look no further than to Jesus Christ, the anointed one who now sits on David's throne forever in faithful fulfillment of God's covenant promise. You see, when we remember Jesus, then we will be able to sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. When we remember Jesus Christ, we will be able to honestly sing, great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Father, we thank you that there is no shadow of turning with you. You have never once been unfaithful, and you never will be unfaithful. We thank you that even though we have been unfaithful multiple times over, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. You are faithful to keep us to the very end because you've put your spirit in us, sealed us for the inheritance to come. You're faithful to provide everything we need between now and then for a life of increasing in godliness as we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us remember your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.